hello and welcome to Volume 1, Issue 29 of the Cane and Rinse podcast. Three years after the Sands of Time trilogy concluded with The Two Thrones, and a year after a downloadable remake of the original, the 2008 Prince of Persia reboot came out to a warm, if not boiling, reception in among the avalanche of AAA titles released in quarter four that year. Were the heir to the Prince of Persia crown, or the lineage's embarrassing bastard that should have been secretly smothered at birth? Joining me, Leon Cox, this week is Tony Atkins. Hello. And also James Carter. Hello. And completing our Scottish quotient, welcome back, Darren Foreman. Greetings, glorious humans. (laughs) And non-humans, AIs, aliens, animals... So Prince of Persia, my first ever uh, experience of Prince of Persia, it was actually, uh, this is, seems to be a theme now, but it, it was a pirate copy of the original Prince of Persia, the, <laughs> okay. the Amiga conversion. Yeah, I know, I sound like a terrible pirate, but I really wasn't. This was literally the first ever pirate copy of a game I owned. This was in 1990 or 91. Uh, the Apple II was the original Prince of Persia, and that came out in 89. Uh, it was converted to virtually everything ever, and, and that still continues to this day. Uh, and I was around a friend's one time playing Amiga games, and he was the kind of person who had a big box full of pirated Amiga games, which I never did. I, I always had all the originals. I used to go and buy them with my hard-earned burger bar money, um, have the boxes and the manuals, and pay my dues and all that. But uh, this friend just said, oh, I've got two copies of Prince of Persia. And uh, I said, oh, all right then. So I took it and uh, I didn't play it very much. Uh, but I wondered at the famous animation. Jordan Mechner famously uh, rotoscoped his little brother. I, th- I believe that video has actually popped up now. I think you can actually watch the original video that he took of his little brother hmm. um, running left to right, um, and uh, which he used for the animation of the young prince in the first game. Uh, I pretty much never played Prince of Persia 2 or, or Prince of Persia 3D um, and the Sands of Time trilogy I played the first one um, still never completed it I've owned it several times uh, The Warrior Within and the Two Thrones I completely avoided because uh, that was where they went all uh, emo, goth, dark, moody gritty whatever you want to call it um, so this was actually Although I bought the the XBLA remake since ported to PSN and other things, um, which was still absolutely brutally hard. Mm -hmm. Um, 
this was my first Prince of Persia proper new one since since the first game. Um, uh, who would, who else has a, any history with Prince of Persia pre two thousand and eight? The one we're actually going to talk about today. Uh, I I completely missed the first one. I don't know the rhyme or reason why, but they completely passed me by. I did uh, have a go of the of the XBLA version, and yes, that was indeed hard. So I was probably just as well to miss it back then. But it looked gorgeous actually. Um, and then the Sands of Time trilogy. I, my first encounter of that was I think it was the when Play dot com did their weird live expo or one of those ones. It might oh, even be right. before that. Um, they had it at the event, and you could go there. So I, I was messing around and saw Sands of Time for the first time, and it. It actually really impressed me then. I was like, "My God, this you know, walking on, you know, running on walls and, and swinging around on the on oh yeah curtains. I say curtains, but they're banners, weren't they?" Um, so that was my first scene, and and I played through the first game. Uh, I did go through the second game, and then I didn't bother with the third. I think I'd kind of worn off the series once the emo mm. roots had taken in. But then that was okay. a, a thing that was happening around that time. Everything was trying to get darker, but yeah, yeah. Uh, if we ever we we may one day do a Sands of Time show, I'm not sure we'd do the uh, not sure we'd do the second two games in the series. Although I know that they do have their supporters they despite do, yeah. all the negativity. Um, I think some say that particularly. I think is it the the third one that people say they really kind of got all their gameplay shit together, even if the the aesthetic direction was not necessarily. I, it, the... I think it cut down a bit on the aesthetics as well for the third one because a lot of people complained, obviously, because you're going from yeah. this fairly artistic. Uh, take on the first one and it went very emo for the second so mm. uh, I think probably three is actually really it'd be a, a, it's a good franchise to talk about it's a beloved franchise as well and it's it's got the HD collection so you could easily uh, pick yep. it up and, and play through it but fair yeah, bit of I just, it's a it's quite a lazy HD collection but I did download the Sounds of Time a lazy on... HD collection well no really well there's there's two <laughs> kinds that's, as we as we know from historical mm. shows uh, who's next oldest I think it's Darren um slightly older than uh, James. So what about you and Prince of Persia? I've played them all apart from Two Thrones and the SNES version of the original, which was meant to be very good indeed. Yeah, I, I heard a lot of good things about the SNES, uh, Prince of Persia. I... Uh, SNES also got Prince of Persia 2, didn't it? Yeah, that was the one that started off in like a little Saudi Arabian kind of environment. Yeah. I never did finish um, that one, so... but I played it. Right, did, does that mean you did play Prince of Persia 3D? No, it completely struck that abomination from my mind. Okay, was it was it an abomination? I know virtually nothing about it. The one that I saw, unless I'm remembering the game wrong, was the frame rate was all to hell. It just didn't feel like a Prince of Persia game. Uh, it came out on Windows and Dreamcast, I think, hmm. uh, in about ninety nine two thousand. Prince of Persia three D Arabian Nights, uh, possibly um, by Red Orb Entertainment. And Avalanche Software handled the conversion to the Dreamcast. Obviously, I'm looking this up. This is not all from memory. <laughs> I know virtually nothing about this game. Uh, I really, yeah, I really couldn't tell you. It's, um, it. I mean, it, it counts. I think it officially counts as the third entry into the the original trilogy. But I don't think, I'm not sure anyone has. It's, it's a bit like the Metal Gear franchise that we've been covering. Of, um, how a lot of people mm. don't even know that the series started previously to sands of time i don't think i think they do now yeah, with the, this, the remake but that's that's right this came up on our on our forum where uh, one of our correspondents referred to the original trilogy and I, I i knew what he meant he meant the sands of time trilogy and i was like whoa dude mm. no way <laughs> uh 
so uh, you've played most of the modern ones and a couple a couple of the old ones, Darren and James. What about you? Uh, in, in what's becoming a pretty uh, strong running theme, I came to this much later than than all of you. <laughs> That's guys. okay. Um, That's valid too, James. <laughs> Don't feel I, in, inferior. I, um, I think. I picked up the XBLA remake of the original Prince of Persia uh, when it came out and played that. So that's the first time I came across it, which I think was 2007. Uh, yes, it was. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was aware of Prince of Persia and I certainly wouldn't have, have uh, omitted the original games uh, and, and thought that the Sands of Time trilogy was the original at all. Um I knew of it, just never had played it. Uh, I think I'd seen it in action, but I honestly can't put a finger on where or when that would have been. Um, so I, I played through that. I didn't find it. I didn't find it too hard, but I don't know. Mm. Maybe I. I think probably my propensity for putting up with a lot of perseverance and and repeated deaths probably uh, helped me there. Um, yeah, it's very and, much about learning. Uh, patterns, which in a way, the one the one we're talking about today is more of a return to that than it is to um, to the sands of time. Although it's way mm. more forgiving, as we'll discuss. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, completely uh, oblivious. Not oblivious. I knew of the Sands of Time trilogy, and I'd seen through the advertising and some comments mm. that the the tr- the series, the three games, had sort of got darker and grittier as everything did then as as we've already said i think it was just sort of uh of that kind of era where films and tv it was all about being grittier and darker and that kind of thing and uh blaring mm. sort of average to middling pop metal nonsense over the top of it um <laughs> mm-hmm. so when i saw prince of persia 2008 it seemed very different to me yeah. from what I knew of the way the trilogy had gone previously. So I was definitely interested and picked that up uh, at release um, and, and played it and, and enjoyed it, I think it's fair to say. So I remember this being a bit out of the blue for me and that I knew it was coming, but I expected nothing of it, I don't think. Um, and yeah, I think well, it um, was... Ubisoft... I think I read they started making it in 2006 but didn't actually announce it until May 2008 so that's a pretty late mm. announcement mm. for yeah. a game that then came out some 5 6 months later so yeah um, and it came out uh, as as I said earlier it came out after an absolute uh tumult is that the right word deluge yeah, absolutely yeah. deluge that 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 quarter uh, famously obviously it's something we see most years but it it seemed particularly heavy that time um the game went on to sell over 2 million copies so it certainly didn't tank um and it's interesting as we'll hear from uh, twitter and forum correspondents later that uh, the perception of it is both that it was terrible and it was brilliant and it was overrated and it was terrible and it was uh, underrated and it was uh, rubbish <laughs> and it was a failure and it was a success no one seems to really know but actually well, the impression I get is that quite a lot of people did play it and quite a lot of people enjoyed it I think mm. the failure aspect comes across because it didn't essentially I mean jumping ahead but it didn't get a sequel it you know something else happened to the series they they went back to the original stuff which followed this game a lot of that mm. you could argue was to do with the the film's release and a more yeah. kind of natural organic look to and matching up the film 
but I think that's why most people feel like this was a failure because it, as you said, it's kind of like the bastard child. It, it doesn't really fit within the universe. No. It doesn't continue any of the storylines. It's just a, a entity of its own. It has the name, but you know, as some would argue, very little to do with the, the previous ones. Now, depending on how you feel about you know story wise, I, I think I, you mm. could argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But see, I'd argue. I think it. it it was perceived as a bit of an odd game and perhaps a failure by some at the time. So it wasn't even the fact that, you know, there was a perceived abandonment of it and moving on to the Forgotten Sands, which was about the movie. The team who made it insisted that they want to go back to this game. And I think, as far as I know, they do to this day. They insist that they'd like to return to this game, but the movie was being made. They needed to tie into it. The movie was largely based around the Sands of Time uh, trilogy, so they wanted a game that tied mm-hmm. in with that. So I, I think that's why they took that direction, but I, I think the the perception of it being an odd and perhaps underwhelming game came about at the time of its release, and I think um, the best way I can put it perhaps, looking f- f- as, as someone who enjoyed this game but didn't have any attachment to the Sands of Time trilogy is, it depends how much you're willing just to let the Sands of Time trilogy stand and be and move on from it because this game has almost no connection in any way to what's come previously yeah and um as far as i can tell from credits lists i've managed to look at for this game jordan mechner had very little to do with it if anything at all uh the whereas he was involved in the sands of time series um crucial people involved seem to be uh designer jean-christophe guyot um a writer, writers Andrew S. Walsh and uh, Rihanna Pratchett and um, producer Ben Matz. These are apart from Rihanna Pratchett, who has got writing credits. Obviously, she's Terry Pratchett's daughter on a few other games. Um, these are perhaps not as famous names as as Jordan Mechner. So, was it the Sands of Time, the Sands of Time trilogy in the end? Was it was it meant as a trilogy? Was that the story arc? basically being told and uh, the idea of this 2008 kind of reboot was to take the general core of what Prince of Persia was and spin it in a whole new direction and maybe turn this into a trilogy because obviously it has the story links to continue on from where it does and, and the epilogue DLC which certainly suggests that they, they foresee a future for this mm-hmm. this new side of Prince of Persia before the uh, the, you know, the sequel well before the, the title happened after this this was it, is it what's the second one what's the one called after this one Forgotten, Forgotten Sands. Sands. Forgotten Sands. So I mean, obviously mm. that's the direction they went then, but there's certainly story links to, to continue this on. So do you think this was just a, an attempt at a reboot of a, a series that had already kind of finished a story arc? I think so. I, th- I think we get character introductions. We get a setup of how the two main characters meet, the circumstances under which they meet. And then at the end, it's very clearly left to suggest that you know, the story begins here. There's there's more to happen. There's something to follow this. So, yeah, mm. I would say so. I have no idea when uh, The Sands of Time was made, um, which was uh, extremely well received at the time. Uh, there, there were some complaints about it being overly reliant on lengthy sequences of combat with too many enemies on screen, stuff like that. Um, but it was, largely it was, uh, it was highly lauded. But I have no idea if it was, that was, 
planned as a trilogy at the time or it was right here's a prince of persia reboot called the sands of time with this new mcguffin and this 3d platforming and uh and whatever um and then i guess it yeah, did well yeah. so it got sequels i don't think it was like um, mass effect where they said from oh, day no, one i don't think that but that's i, I think be, it, yeah. it did very well yeah uh so looking into the uh history of the development of this game um they talk about how they wanted to take certain things back to basics as i alluded so for instance one of the flaws with sands of time or one of the complaints people had was that uh the the combat went away from the one-on-one duels of the original prince of persia side on 2d games and and went for this sort of arena combat mm-hmm. um and all the fights in prince of persia 2008 are well they're not one-on-one they're two-on-one really because it's you and uh you as the prince and elica versus uh one of the uh one of the big bads lieutenants um or minions uh and also well i mean the yeah i guess we'll we'll, we'll talk a little about the backstory first but the I guess that the weird thing for me is that in some ways it it does re- in some ways it resembles the Sands of Time trilogy more in terms of the way it plays but in other ways it's more about learning sequences which was very much what the the original was actually um but your actual traversal through these um weird uh completely sort of illogical areas um, almost become like a, a QT in themselves. It's almost a sort of, um, it's almost like Bit Trip Runner or something actually playing this game because it is pretty much inputting a sequence of commands. Um, and, and there's very much a correct, there's very much a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. This game has virtually no flexibility. Okay, so to expand on that for people that haven't uh, maybe played the game, um, it, it continues over with the gameplay of um, from the Prince of Persia's where you, you have a lot of wall running. Uh, one running that can lead onto it, you know, grabbing onto certain objects on the side and then swinging from those. And, you know, the kind of 3D platforming you would imagine, but, you know, you could argue that Prince of Persia was one of the ones that really took it, you know, to a, to a, an advanced place, certainly back on the, you know, back when it first released. So with this, the idea is that you jump onto a wall, you hold down A. With that, you run along the wall. Um, say you either go to the vine, but if you don't necessarily get to the vine, you come to a, a, say, a hook on the wall, like a little ring. With that, you need to hold B. To, to basically activate you swinging on, on rings um, and then you swung the ring and then you back on the wall so you hold down A again this is on the Xbox 360 pad which then maybe could take you to another pole which you then jump and it's basically you hold down A or you hold down B um, mm. with maybe a little bit of Y um, <laughs> or a triangle if you want to do necessarily a double jump which Elika grabs you and, and throws you if I'm yeah, to, remembering to correctly. help you get further but what I mean is that pretty much every area it, although it's sort of true in in the sands of time games it those were more like uh what uncharted went on to do which is that although it is very much there is a path through the level it's not you know you can take your time over it you can shimmy left and right a bit you have a certain amount of flexibility i mean assassin's creed as well this game was actually built on the bones of the same engine as as, was, yeah. as assassin's creed um and and again, although those games have a certain amount of sort of scripted parkour, this game really takes the the the, the sort of the key thing I remember about playing this game is that it was almost like a like playing Vib Ribbon or something, which is also something I said about 
at uh, BitTrip Runner, which is where it's pretty much you're getting a cue from something you see on screen to press a certain button, which does give it the sense of rhythm action or, or indeed quick time event. Did, I mean, who who actually enjoyed that side of the gameplay and who thought it felt limiting? I felt what they'd done is, I, I certainly spotted the parallels to Assassin's Creed, and I think um, perhaps the success of Assassin's Creed is what casts a shadow over this game, but that's a separate issue. In mm. terms of the actual... Um, the traversal it feels a little bit like in assassin's there's no climbing like assassin's creed pretty much as far as i remember um but but what you do get is um when you're up on the rooftops in assassin's creed and you're literally holding forward and a Mm -hmm. and you're just choosing the direction you go in and 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 almost the actual parkour side of it kind of takes care of itself in respect to that it's a little bit more involved than that because as tony says you do have to kind of chain a few combos together but not really um it seemed to me like they were keeping it simple just to facilitate a feeling of really being able to move freely around this world without getting too frustrated i think the thing is i mean they've kind of broken it down into bite-sized challenges from any platform that you're at you'll usually be you'll jump on a wall you'll avoid a few say, spinning razor blades, you'll slide down the side of a building and then you'll land on another platform. And that's one of the chunks that you've just passed because the, now the platform that you're on is the restart point if you happen to fall. Yeah, you'll never have to do that last bit again. Exactly. Unless, unless, you, yeah. unless you go back there for the orbs later on. Yeah, that's very I, true. I think their, their argument would be that um, by keeping it fairly simple that you can really make it feel like organically flow in as as you're playing it. So like James was saying about Assassin's Creed, when you when you're in that that you know you you're focused and you're holding down A and you can see the ring coming up, you know that you need to hold down B as that's coming up. You can really get a good pace on and it and it feels like you're flying through the environment and that that does give you a sense of you know uh, well mm. adrenaline pumping through the body. I think the problem is is if you study it for too long, you realize actually the game it's is kind of playing itself. And I, I think this is where the big issue that many people kind of tackled it's on. It's kind of a ride, isn't it? And you're sort well, of along for it a lot of the time. See, this this is one of the things is I, I think everyone, if you're like me, uh, when you're holding down A, you're, you're kind of pressing in a direction that you think you want to travel mm. uh, because clearly that's going to help. In fact, you can actually let go of the thumbsticks entirely. As long as you're pressing down the A button, he's going to yeah. perform the move that you expect him to move. So you can actually let go of the pad. And a lot of people didn't believe me this, so I remember playing this with Alex, and, and he was like, "No, that's that's not true." And I I told him just to let go of the pad and hold down A, and it was a simple section of platforms, and it it took him from one side all the way to the other side, and without any input other than him just pressing A button. Now, it's actually quite liberating when you first realise that as well, because all, but it's by the same token, it also makes you realise that you're not quite as cool as you thought you were. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and so the, the negative would be, well, how much do you you know, want to feel like you're in control of your games. I think if you analyse it, you can quickly break it and, and realise kind of that the game is playing itself. But that's not to say that isn't tri- the tricky platform sections there is, because those button presses do essentially become more A, B, B, Y, A, A. You know, they're, they're, they're more than just hold down a singular button. But ultimately you are doing very little to kind of navigate through the environment other than maybe steering a bit left and a bit right. But they, they do become... A little bit harder, but I think the bigger issue, which really seemed to turn people, and I don't know if we necessarily want to get into this now, is the the mm. no death penalty, um, which kind of 
tacks on yeah. this. Well, the, ga- the game is yeah very forgiving in a lot of ways, and uh, you could you can't really die as such because Elica always grabs you at the last minute. But yeah, so the, your worst punishment is being put back to the start of a particular sequence, which is normally not not a huge distance back. The- Although I do recall some rather unpleasant lengthy almost free-flying sequences that came mm-hmm. up a few times and they, they were quite frustrating because the controls in that were were unlike anything else in the game sorry darren no i'm just saying i mean even though she's saving your life every time that you die it's not that different from just a common checkpoint system the difference is that mm. there's not a thing saying haha you're shit and you're dead do you want to continue mm. yeah that's that's exactly my concern here is that the absence of a game over screen doesn't actually mean that the game's easier. It's not giving you a slap in the face by telling you game over, you're a loser, you fail. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's an issue. I think the the bigger problem, the bigger concern I have is if it's actually true that this, the, the game, it doesn't play itself, but as Tony's saying, it kids you into thinking you're doing more than you really are. Mm-hmm. That's a bigger concern to me than instead of saying game over, you died, back to this platform, do it again, and mm. putting you back to exactly the same spot, which that's where they put the checkpoints is a simple choice. You know, plenty of other games checkpoint you very generously in order to stop you being um, frustrated with the game. Now, okay, those games tend to be stuff like Super Meat Boy that's more challenging anyway, so they need to do that in order to stop frustration and uh extreme challenge sort of colliding with one another um so in this case it's kind of several things at once all sort of combining together to make you feel like the game is incredibly easy but just swapping a game over screen which many people would say break brings them out of the game you know if they die as a character and then it's just well restart that that's kind of it's immersion breaking yeah, it's um, kind of like the old thing of um, some 3D platformers still insist on giving you a number of lives when many many developers have realised that that's simply a throwback to old yeah. arcade games, coin-ops. And actually, you, there's no need to do that. There's there's no need to have people yeah. game-overed and run out of lives. Just let them keep on trying, because ultimately they'll probably keep stick with the game longer. Yeah, absolutely. It, I, th- I think having... And OK, every time Elica's saying effectively, that's not how it happened... It's a bit like that. It's the, that's not how it happened, let's try that again, kind of get out. But they're all just ways, and they may be kind of clunky ways, of avoiding that death screen, that but, game over, that, you know, pushing you out of the narrative. If if you look at the heritage of the Prince of Persia franchise, one of the, one of the amazing things the first one did was the, the reverse time aspect from the actual sands of time itself. That was something... That's that, not the first one. Was that not the first one? Come on, do it. <laughs> Come on, one first was one was 1989. Sands of Time. Okay. Sands of Time. Oh, okay, fine. Okay, the, sand, <laughs> the thing that um, the Sands of the Time... First, you... Actually, it's worth saying, the first one um, was a time-based game, and you could die as you many times as you wanted in the original yeah. print. You had one hour. It was a bit like uh, Impossible Mission by Epics on the Commodore 64, in that it didn't matter how many times you died until you ran out of time. And it mm-hmm. also did have a quick restart by, by the... The um, by the standards of games of, of that time, you you weren't kept out of the game for too long before you could jump back in. So, but yeah, Sounds of Time. Tony. Okay, so the the Sounds of Time's mechanic was two thousand and three. If you, if, not if you made a miss jump, um, that you held down the button. I think you had a limited amount of resource within the Sounds of Time. 
Um, and with that, you could rewind the mistake you just made. And the mistake was you just made was down to completely your own fault, of course, you know, making the wrong jump at the wrong time, which this game kind of eliminates to a degree, although you, you can still make a wrong jump just by maybe not doing a double jump when you should have done. Yeah, um, hold down so the wrong that, button. Yeah, that me- well, yeah, so, so that mechanic just felt like it was fairly fresh and fairly unique. Um, and it almost this one seemed to be like a downgrade. It, it's, it was just seemed to like a lot more simpler. Well, there you go. Back to where you fell down. And, and rather than, well, here's a cool mechanic to say, yeah, you messed up, but you got to press it at the last second to survive, just, yeah, save yourself. It did make a bit more sense, though, because like Sons of Time was based with the prince telling you a story. And he must have one really shitty memory if he's telling you in all honesty that he thought that he got cleaved in half at one point and then, <laughs> oh wait, maybe I didn't get cleaved in half. That's not oh, what You've happened. just ruined what I always thought was a fantastic sort of uh, wraparound for that game. Such a great conceit, the uh, telling, I'm telling the story with, with a tiny bit of the game to go. But you're quite right, of course, it's, it's ludicrous in a way. And that was the point where, sadly, I got chopped into pieces. Oh, no, wait. Wait <laughs> no, a minute. No, I didn't. I'm here then, telling you a story. Yeah. But then it was like, no, it, no, it was. No, it wasn't. No, it was. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Damn it. But, um, I'm uh, sorry. This, I was drunk is... while all this was happening. You know, I just, I can't remember my damn thing. <laughs> God, but, imagine doing that while you were drunk. This, this is something, This, this, the whole not dying aspect is something that's, I think, shadowed over this game or haunted this game ever since its release and it's been a discussion point of of many a, a topics about you know what is a game over screen and screen and really what is its purpose mm. so I, I think if anything you know this did bring in that that argument to the forefront um but it really did anger a lot of people in 2000 it was something that no, it was certainly like i i have my issues with this game um we'll discuss in in the roundup at the end but that was the least of my concerns. I actually thought that was a nice concession to not wasting the, wasting my time by dumping me out to end screens or giving giving me a, an unskippable five second you died screen or anything something like that. You know, just. I mean, it's definitely uh, a lot better than two humans version. You know. Oh God. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that. Rise what, what up. Two human. Do? It's a Valkyrie comes down to take you away to Valhalla, and it takes about nine mm. hours every time. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Well, I'm playing a Silicon Knights game right now because, of course, next week we're uh, we'll be talking about Eternal Darkness. But hopefully, that game doesn't do anything. I I actually think so um, the the not dying aspect actually plays a bigger role in the combat rather than anything else, rather than the actual platforming. I think it's a welcome yeah welcome thing in in the platforming. Well, that was the next thing to talk about because, as well as the platforming, which takes up most of your time, there is also a fair amount it is interspersed with uh, some combat, and again. This the combat system is really more about pattern learning, memory, and rhythm and response, rather and show and tell. Um, it's certainly not an open, free flowing combat system. I was wondering, in particular, how Darren, how you felt about the combat as somebody who uh, who above anything else likes very deep, flexible combat systems. This is something very different, isn't it? Yeah, to be honest, I mean, I didn't feel it was a particularly good combat system. It's quite limited. There's a lot of combos and stuff you can do, but the mm. amount of actual maneuverability that you've got is limited because of the plane that you're fighting on. Yeah, extremely, yeah. Um, I mean, it's okay. It's it's decent just to add a bit of variety, but I don't think there's actually enough that you can add to it yourself. I mean, in a way, it is kind of directed in itself, you know? 
So I recall sort of the, as I recall, you fought sort of each of the lieutenants on more than one occasion, and normally by the yeah. the third or fourth time, they were the, the, your your windows of opportunity were were very small, and it and it came down more and more to knowing exactly. It was more about spotting the animation and knowing the exact set of moves, combos, and magic to open up the. Uh, the, the these enemies tended to be corrupted, which is covered in a sort of darkness in the same way that you might have seen in Alan Wake and various other things, um, Mario Sunshine, uh, and then using uh, utilizing Elika's magic to cl- uh, get that off them, so you can actually hurt them with your scimitar. Yeah, I think um, so. Almost all of the combat takes place in circular arenas mm-hmm. uh, of one kind or another. And am I right in thinking the camera actually almost moves around the arena rather than sticking to you? It zooms right in and it sort of goes almost cinematic side on, sort of, or two yeah, thirds. Yeah, yeah. It, it certainly yeah. it changes when you're in combat. I think the the issue probably with the combat is that there are combos that can be done. Darren's absolutely right, and actually. Um, if you want to start learning some of those combos and using them, it starts to get a little bit more complex. It's not, you know, proper third-person action game complex. But, you know, getting... I think there's an achievement for a, the 14-button yeah. combo yeah. that uses every single move. That I, that was tough for me. And I, Okay, I'm not good at button combos and fighting games and brawlers and that sort of thing. But that was quite tough for me. And so striving for that through the boss fights meant that I was using as many of the combos as I possibly could. The problem, I think, is that you don't have to. You were saying, Leon, that you have to know the exact button combination to use in when a, a boss is advancing on you. Mm. From my memory, it's really simple. It's You have to know which button to press when the enemy is doing a certain attack because right. you either need to hit them with magic or dodge or hit them with a sword or whatever it is okay. to break them out yeah. of the attack and it, so it's sort of it's sort of scissors paper stone stuff isn't it, it yeah it, it is kind of from my memory at least and you can be more creative if you want to but you don't need to be and i think right. that's the problem you can get through it just being really simplistic with what you're doing yeah and the, almost button mashing the main thing you can do um you can just hold block for the entire time so mm. your block seems to be pretty really? much impenetrable <laughs> yeah pretty much you can be impenetrable for most most of the fights anyway they'll just bang you know bounce off your sword um and quite often that gives you the the leading opening bit but it, it's the the actual combo system uh, james you're correct i mean if you're going for that 14 hit combo in particular then mm. there's a lot of time into it you can't just mm. basically you know put in a button press you have to wait for certain tails once you've launched them in the air they need to be down a certain distance before you can then activate the next one so you can actually do like a, a pretty you know impressive loop on the combo on that but it, like you don't need to it, you can pretty mm. much just nine times out of ten either hit or use magic and and that's it now but once again that plays into they they wanted to carry over the simplicity of maybe the the, the platforming into the combat controls as well um yeah. and back to the point of my issue with with the not dying aspect i mean it well dying or not dying um mm. you if you do leave yourself to be to be open you kind of get into this you know bashing of like i think it was whatever x or whatever um and you can repel but if you get hit you lose say you die and elica once again saves you um the boss sometimes gets a little sliver of his health back but not a lot so Ultimately, you can just get yourself in a loop of dying over and over again and being really aggressive with, with the combos, and the boss's health is, is eventually just going to whittle down to nothing anyway. 
I think that that sounds familiar. That's probably how I played it, rather than... Yeah, I think the problem is that the developers kind of wanted their cake and eat it. They wanted everyone to be able to play through this game to see the story and to see the way Mm -hmm. the game looked, because we haven't talked about graphics yet, but we will. Of course. Um, They wanted people to experience this game, no matter their ability. And as for a lot of gamers, that's kind of not good enough. You need to feel like you're being challenged, and that's why they put the combo system in. That's why they made you feel like you were doing awesome things when you were platforming. And as Tony found out, I I actually didn't, although I thought it was very simplistic. It was even more simplistic than I thought, because as Tony says, apparently you know you're actually not doing all that much, or certainly less than you think you are, to influence what's going on in the game. And at that point, you know, we we get into Asura's Wrath territory. How much is it actually a game and how much is it actually just a, a film that you're pressing buttons to continue, you know? Well, but, I mean, the smoke and mirrors effect, if it's working, then it's working. Sometimes I mm. feel like people get overly, you know, critical or let it get in under their skin a lot more than they probably should. I mean, ultimately, yes, you can just hold down A in some sections, but even though once I knew that, I was still pressing the direction that I wanted to go because, because that was my brain telling me, well, you know, I kind of want to feel like I'm having more of an interaction with this than I maybe I truly am. But it, there is there is still sections, certainly, where you have to do a lot slower pace. It's not always fast-paced platforming, and quite often there is, how do I get to the top of this maybe chamber or tunnel? Um, and you do have to, you know, jump and move onto a platform and just jump onto mm. something else, work out the next puzzles. Or let's face it, the puzzles weren't really overly taxing. Most of them were move a lever um, some get the, to the other side. Some of the puzzles were a little obscure, you know. It was just kind of trial and error as opposed to being clever puzzles. Yeah, mm. there was a few where you had sort of um, sort of three circles on the side of a room and had to line them up and move them around, wasn't there? And it, it took a second to sort of step back. But I think the biggest... They weren't puzzles, but the the biggest part of the game that you're talking about, Tony, where you had to slow down and look around is if you wanted to collect all of the light orbs. Mm. You kind of had to pick up the orbs, though, because like you wouldn't well, be permitted to continue into certain areas unless you had yeah, a certain yeah. amount. But you didn't have to get them all, I don't think. You, no, you no, didn't. You no, had to get no. about two-thirds of them. and you Only if you wanted achievements or trophies did you have yeah, to get them we, all. we did. We did. Well, no, when I, I didn't, actually. I gave up at the end. But, um, oh, right, really? Okay, I did, then. No, it doesn't. I, I think because once I think, say you needed to need four hundred orbs to to get through the the you know to the fast line the final part of the game. It seems about right, and there's I think nine hundred ninety nine to collect. So there's a lot more. Actually, yeah, you're right. It was it was about you maybe got about half of the yeah. orbs you you needed uh, just to go through the game. But actually, I, uh, I'm sure somebody who was a real big fan of the actual uh, navigation of the the game worlds, which are even though this game is set in ancient Persia, which is a real place, Iran, um, these places are obviously th- this. These environments are designed entirely to facilitate Prince of Persia's gameplay. This is, these are in no <laughs> way logical abodes, living places. I mean, they, they sort of the characters sort of allude to this at points. It's like, what the hell? You know, how the hell did you live in these ridiculous places? Because it's all built on slopes and walls and. Uh, guttering and it's like and these sky are, high platforms yeah yeah i mean yeah big balloons one of the areas is just yeah it's just so high up it's just absolutely absurd it's up above um, the clouds isn't it yeah yeah and then um and yes one of the the mechanics is that or how the game is sort of ostensibly open world but it's actually one of the most 
pointlessly open world games I can think of in that there's only a reason to go back to places if you want to collect orbs, which obviously, as as we've said, is, is essential to get a certain amount. But for somebody who really, really enjoyed the 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 QTE style traversal, platform traversal, the the orbs collecting all the orbs was actually the perfect way to, to mm-hmm. do that because it it insisted, as with all good platform games, we we talked about uh, Rayman Origins before. If you want to get all the looms in a level, you have to play the level really well and thoroughly, um, and and that is what getting all the orbs was about. But yeah, there came a point for me where I think I had I don't know, you know, five five to six hundred, um, and there were still sort of several achievements to go for more and more orbs, and it actually became difficult to. Was there? Did it show you on the map where there yeah, were still orbs to be gotten? Well, okay, you, yeah, the areas whether you got right. how many orbs in that one area, but. Once you were in an area, it was actually quite hard to... It could get quite difficult to work your way around to actually... Because you could get through the main game just by following the obvious main path through the level, but to collect all the orbs, you had to kind of work out ways of going off the beaten track, if I recall. And also the orbs were were there to lead you on those paths, so you never really got lost because it was just, well, just follow the the blue glowy thing within the environment. Even more than that, you could click on a thumbstick, I believe, and then Elka would just basically show you where you were going anyway. Yep. That's right, yeah. It had a uh, an, yeah, an yeah. idiot button, which, uh, yeah, yeah dead why. space type thing, yeah, to, to tell you where to go. Um, but that, yeah. yeah, that tells you where your next next objective is, and that no longer worked when you were going back to collect the three orbs you missed. There was a little mm. bit of backtracking through some of the old environments, certainly back towards the end of the game, um, once the, the world kind of, there was, I remember that there was been a very black section, um, and... If I remember rightly, isn't it like the corrupted? The, yeah, yeah, it starts going corrupted quite mm. badly at one point, and you have to backtrack through environments you've been. It's been a yeah, while. yeah. I mean, the, the the corruption acts as uh, as what would have if if this were a two D platform game, and in many ways it would work just as well in in two D. The the nature of the gameplay it just wouldn't look as spectacular. The the sort of blobs of corruption um, are your your old school enemy sprites on screen. They're they're too for you to uh, work out their pattern and timing and uh, dodge from one platform to another, jump, make your jumps at the right time and stuff like that. Um, the sort of g- gloopy, bubbling stuff that lives on the walls almost takes, sort of has a life of its own. Um, so yeah, let's let's rewind to actually what the hell's going on in this game. Um, mm-hmm. It, As I say, it's set in Persia, hence the name, although... Not hence the name. The prince is not a prince, as far as we are aware. He's just a dude with a donkey. <laughs> <His> donkey. <laughs> who's named Farah. Uh, donkey is named after the, his his love interest in the Sands of Time series, so there is a little nod there, other than... The I'm hoping that the, the relationship one, between him and his donkey isn't the same as it was in the Sands of Time. Well, <laughs> it's, it's open to... It kind of is at question. the beginning. He's, he's pretty insistent on mm-hmm. saving that donkey. <laughs> and and uh, pretty attached to it, it seems. He's attached so, to it for about ten minutes until Alika comes on the scene, and, and then he's like, "Yeah, yeah." yeah well, I see, easily donkey, distracted yeah. from a donkey by uh, yeah, an uh, uh, an attractive an young princess. lady in a diaphanous uh, outfit. Yeah, um, yeah, she's she is an actual princess, right? So she's a princess, but he's not a prince. Yeah, um, no. perhaps perhaps a better name. And she's reboot. dead. Been princess. Bit of better would have been Princess of Persia. Oh yeah, she's dead. Um, so he goes from yeah. a donkey to a dead woman. What a what a hero we've got! 
There's no accounting for taste. Uh, he is, of course, voiced by Nolan North. Um, this was recognisable at the time, although not so much as it is now. Uh, I think this was the start of, and I think this game bore some of the brunt of that, of the feeling that Nolan North was kind of everywhere. Yeah. And, and this yeah. was a game where very much he was clearly asked to be Drake. <laughs> There's no kidding around here it's not i mean we've we've heard him in games where he sounds different we've heard him in games where he sounds the same this yeah. one he is playing drake wise character voice and all basically yeah this is also that's... one of the first games that i heard him in mm. or at least the one yeah, first yeah. recognizable roles that i noticed yeah. he was in it's that certainly you know he was in every game so you just didn't recognize him yeah <laughs> it certainly wasn't as uh as he wasn't as ubiquitous back then or we weren't aware but it's interesting he still does lots of small parts in in other games as well as his famous main roles he's still in you know you just walk past him in saints row the third or something like that as a pedestrian anyway this is not the nolan north special uh so he ends up kind of bumping into elica after a sandstorm and uh, she's running away from soldiers uh you don't know why but obviously she's cute so you help her out well she jumps and lands on top of you and he goes hi oh yeah okay <laughs> Uh, she's discovering her magical powers of light, which she was hitherto unaware of. E... She so this is where uh, we start to learn about Ariman and uh, Oz Oz Osman. <laughs> That's not right. Ormazd. O r m a z d. Ormazd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and now apparently, uh, research has told us that uh, the. This backstory to do with the sort of uh, theological battle between uh, Araman and Ormazd is uh, to do with uh, the teachings of the uh, famous, what's the word, prophet, Zarathustra. Yes. Um, yeah, you, you may know him from such pieces of music as the 2001 <laughs> theme. <laughs> he didn't write it. He's just, uh, that's about him. Um, so, uh, James, <laughs> as a resident intellectual, what can you tell us about Zarathustra and Zoroastrianism? Okay, uh, I, I'll parse this as best I can. Okay, Zarathustra is, in, is indeed a prophet. He is a, a prophet for the religion of Zoroastrianism. yeah. <laughs> which... Is a which is a religion that at its very basic level believes that there is a god from which all good and no evil comes, and that there is a source of evil in the world from which all evil emanates mm. and no good comes from. Yeah. Um, so it's a very diametrically opposed belief system. Uh, interestingly, the source of all good is called Ahura Mazda, uh, and that's why Elika's people are called the Ahura. And the source of all evil is. Uh, Araman, although it's actually a slightly different word, but yeah. shortened, it's Angra Man, or I can't remember, uh, okay. but Araman for short. Um, so, which is obviously the source of all evil in this game. Um, the idea being that Elika and her people are keeping this source of evil contained uh, in a temple. Uh, uh, using tree, trees of life. I was going to say there's a there's a tree and there's at least one tree involved, isn't there? Uh, yeah, the, the the temple is the home of the tree of life, and then there's a tree of life that brings uh, light from each of the four realms to the main tree of life that is is keeping him prisoner. So yeah, uh, which is kept in a temple that her people protect. 
um, which is obviously all based on this religion that believes that Ahura is the good and Araman is the is the the evil. So, okay, um, that that's kind of as much as you need to know. There's obviously much more. It goes yeah. back to sixth century BC. There's a lot in it. I'm doing it a disservice because obviously it's a fairly important religion in terms of religious history, but that's that's as much as we need to know going into this. As far that's as probably as much as the authors drawn, of Prince of Persia needed. Uh, so just quite needed possibly, to. yeah. Yeah. So uh, she, uh, Elika, needs to visit uh, these areas to uh, heal them of their corruption, and each is guarded by a uh, somebody who Araman has corrupted by effectively in in the, in the way that. In the way that our own devil might steal their steal their souls in return for some favour or other. Well, we haven't actually discussed how Araman gets free in the first place. Mm. Go for it. Um, what happens at the beginning of the game is that Elika is free and um, is being chased by soldiers, bumps into the prince, um, and they then go straight to the temple, don't they? At which point they encounter the Morning King who uh, you fight with, uh, are overcome by, and during the fight he severs the Tree of Life, freeing Ironman in the first place. Oh, uh, yes. That happens right at the beginning of the game, so that's the sort of instigating incident that spreads this corruption, this darkness over the four realms and sets uh, Elika and the prince off on this uh, path. But James, he feels that he... who is this sorry. shadowy must figure that we're talking about? What... <laughs> The Morning King, you mean? Yes. What's his role in all uh, this? His role in all this is to... Well, at this point, you haven't actually uncovered the backstory, I don't think, have you? I don't think so. But yeah, carry on. With, with, you know, assuming that people either want to know this or they will replay yeah. the game, so... He is Elika's father. Shock. Yeah, he is Elika's father who has sold his soul to Araman in exchange for her life. Yeah, because she's dead. Because she was dead. Yeah is now reincarnate and therefore I'm not going to say zombie because that's a harsh word but technically possibly but she has but she has uh through her reincarnation um or because of her reincarnation yeah she mm. she's got some magical good light white powers which are yeah. which are the uh, antithesis of the 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 nasty dark corruption that's because she's the last of the ahura left and whoever the Ahura, whoever's in charge of them, has those powers to keep Araman at bay, I think, is right. right. So, so it may be because of her reincarnation, it may be because she simply is the last of her people and therefore is the de facto holder of these powers. It's something she it, didn't it's, want. it's not terribly well laid out, I don't think, to be honest. A, a lot of this stuff we're talking about, you and a lot of the background to each of the four... Uh, bosses in the game you kind of have to read about because it doesn't necessarily come across as well as it perhaps No, I didn't think it did. And one of, this, one of the things that this game did really well and is often praised for uh, mm. is the fact that a lot of the exposition is handled on the fly which is, which is really nice because it, it leaves, it's optional and it happens, well, you can be navigating the environment, doing all your uh, all your moves and stuff, I think, and um, and if you continue to interact with Elika, you learn more and more about what's going on, the areas you're in, the backstory, and so on. Um, so that is that is a cool feature, and not enough games do that. Did everyone yeah. appreciate that? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I do. Th yeah, I do much. occasionally wish that more was being said while you're platforming, as opposed to having to stop and talk to Lar, like 
you would get a bond. I couldn't remember actually. Is that is that, is that right? You couldn't I, I think I guess often the problem you talk to Adam, the... she's got a certain amount of conversations that you can yeah. go through before she says, Okay, right, we've got to get going. The I guess the problem would have been delivering the lines while exerting it wouldn't have been right if you were to just be kind of talking normally as if you were standing there while you were actually swinging from pole to pole and sliding along yeah. walls and using your special spiky grippy glove and all that kind of thing. I think that's the actual reason it works so well is because it actually feels like a conversation. Um, a lot of the, you know, in these situations, it feels like two people just basically went to the sound studio, recorded the lines and moved on. This, it does actually feel like they are having a conversation. There's quips, there's interaction. Of course, it's Nolan North doing what Nolan North does. Mm. Um, that's probably why they picked him. But it, there is a real kind of, it feels like the relationship grows as you progress I through may, the game. I, I might be um, remembering this correctly, but I'm pretty sure that it got an award for its writing. Mm. And that wouldn't surprise me, because the actual conversations that they get into, they sound scripted. It's almost too clever in a lot of ways. I was going to say, it's uh, although although it was enjoyable, it was very much... it. it a lot of it felt anachronistic. There were a lot of sort of... Um, you know, American colloquialisms and, and things in there that, that just didn't feel right, but then it yeah. you know, it didn't make it more accessible for a wider audience, I suppose. But, but there's bits yeah. like he tells he tells jokes to her which which are funny yeah. and she, obviously she, he he's almost from a different world, you know, from where she is. Obviously mm. he's, he's the rough boy versus the you know, the spoiled princess to this point. Um so quite often she doesn't get his jokes. Um sometimes he's he you know he he's almost quite sexist in some of his comments yeah um but there but he he tones that down as as he moves on as he's starting to you know generally have feelings for her uh and she's actually really quite brash and harsh towards him at the very start you know merely i am your you know your princess and you will do as i command and you know as you progress through the game you know there's a they they have fallen for each other and you know there's a lot more soft and gentle speech and you know that's that's pretty hard to pull off at the best of times lesser known as a as a free flowing speech and um as not ever taking you out of the game really i mean there's cutscenes for sure but that's not where a lot of this dialogue happens a lot of it's actually no. just on the fly it's interesting actually we i mean we should definitely credit Carrie Walgren who plays Elika mm. um she's every bit as much of a voice artist veteran as Nolan North is she's been doing cartoons and video games non-stop since about the year 2000 or possibly before um if you name a game or a cartoon she's probably in it so they obviously the the directors obviously of this game obviously wanted two people who just could you know knew their shit and could get it down without too much trouble and I, I don't know I'm they whether they whether they ever worked together I don't know but they must have they must have met um Nolan North and, and Carrie Walgren because they they've just worked they've worked on so many of the same yeah. things. I, I think I think you're right, Leon, that there's a, there's certainly an issue where uh the dialogue is very much modern English and mm. modern US English I think. Mm. Um and, and that doesn't necessarily fit the fact that this is supposed to be Persia and ancient whatever way Persia. you cut it, it, it it's yeah it's ancient Persia and there's no getting away from that. Obviously, we wouldn't actually understand what they were saying if they were talking ancient Persian. Yes, that exactly. Is. It wouldn't be English. <laughs> it, it wouldn't be modern yeah. uh, language of any kind. So, um, and and so, I agree with that. But I think they probably made that sacrifice in order to have what I think is pretty good 
dialogue, it does feel like a conversation. And as Tony's saying, it's quite important that you recognise the banter and the flirtation that's going on between these two characters as their relationship develops. Because this story, if it's anything, it's about them. And the very fact that many, many games have suffered when you have a companion because it becomes Mm -hmm. a, a burden... In this game, mm-hmm. they, they avoid that. And okay, it's it's a game conceit to have her with you and you never actually have to protect her. You never actually have to hold her hand and wander around the world as you would this in many is, other this games. This is not eco, or, or indeed, well, this it, is it, not a game it, exactly, of escort yeah. quests either. So, uh, and I may be but overstating she's your, the situation she's your guardian, here. not the other way around. That's, yeah, that's what's yeah, exactly, unusual about it. It feels a lot more like um, Half-Life in that respect when... Gordon Freeman has a companion of any kind, but um, generally you feel like you're still getting on with what you're doing and it's not a burden on you. And I think that's what they were going for here. Um, and so that works. You you get that interaction. You She's there. She's always there. She's sharing your journey, but you never resent her being there in that respect because it's never dragging you down it's never holding you back it's never game over screen because the person you're protecting has died or you know it's, it's not resident evil 5 what he's trying to say yeah if you're resentful for any reason it'll probably be because she's a lot more capable than you are mm. yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah after uh the morning king uh, Elika's father uh cuts the tree of life uh this corrupts the world and then, yeah, as you say, they have to go on their quest, uh, restoring the fertile grounds. This is where there's a little uh, element of the Akami in there, because at the end of each uh, section, uh, sub-world, sub-level, whatever you want to call it, uh, Elika gets to uh, expend some of her energy, uh, sort of, um, yeah, bringing lush, uh, fecund life back to the back to the area. Where 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 before it was miserable and grim and dusty, and it, it's a it's a pretty effect. It is, and it's... also on top of that, by purifying one particular world, it kind of spreads the darkness out into the other ones, and they become harder as, harder as a result. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that yeah, that's right. So that actually does mean that it, it does have a slight effect in which order you tackle things. Yeah, certain areas yeah. will be a lot more difficult if you visit them late in the game. Yeah, although it's balanced so that it doesn't necessarily really matter. It's not like one level is the easy level, so no, you want to do that one last or whatever, uh, because the other ones will get harder. But yeah, that's quite an interesting that's the thing about it. Um, yeah, we should actually use this opportunity, uh, as I've said the word pretty, to talk about the, the visual stylings, um, design and, and graphics. People often refer to this as the cell-shaded Prince of Persia. I don't think Technically, that's completely accurate, but it does have that look about it. Yeah, very much. Um, it's. I think, yeah, you're right, it's technically not cell shading, but it's got a very painterly quality to it. It looks like the whole world and all uh, and the characters have been painted, and it does have that darkened uh, edge to everything to define the characters in the various parts of the world mm. that does mean that it looks cell shaded. I would have said it's more like a, an oil painting, and that's like arguing over semantics like, an, again, but it, like an oil painting come to life yeah kind of <laughs> uh, I think cell shaded doesn't always do it enough justice because it, there's so much you can do with cell shaded it can be really cartoony if you want it to be it's so goddamn colourful as well it just looks fantastic yeah. once you've purified a particular area and it, you can, the birds come out and it's sharpened and it's sunny it's 
yeah. just so nice to look at. And, and the the four different worlds, as ridiculous as they may be to consider that people ever lived there, mm. they do have a, a character, a distinct character to each of them, uh, the, and a distinct look to each of them that makes them feel a bit different, interesting to explore. And I think, especially when you get to some of the worlds that are high up and mm-hmm. you're on platforms and the balloons, and you, you know, it really does look quite spectacular some of the areas reminded me of uh, and this is high praise team andromeda's work on the panzer dragoon games particularly panzer dragoon saga which is uh, obviously it's uh, it's the previous previous gen so dated in some ways but those games were absolutely stunning and uh, that i could even mention this in the same breath is 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 a definite compliment what about the um the enemy design the there's, there's four main enemies the warrior the hunter the concubine and the alchemist who are the people who Ariman has corrupted or taken their souls, whatever. There's perhaps a bit better than the generic video game monster, but I think their designs are a little indistinct, if I'm honest. Yeah, I guess. I mean, part of the problem from that comes from the fact that all the enemies are essentially covered in this corruption, so they're all black to look at basically yeah that, even... that, that extends to the bosses to a certain degree as well yeah yeah um i, I think the the four you've just mentioned are all uh archetypes i suppose you've got the um the warrior is a, a giant hunk of rock essentially mm. um that that is very much the sort of behemoth um, and then you've got the alchemist who's the clever scientist who can teleport and that sort of thing the concubine is is the um the dangerous femme fatale. Yeah, she and stands then, out as being looking different from yeah, the other male. And she seems to have mm. a slightly different way of tackling um, the prince than the others do, if I remember. She she certainly tries to get inside his head more uh, in the boss fights. She's speaking to him and, and playing with him a little bit, mm. whereas the others don't seem to be doing that quite so much. Like, like James said, I think, unfortunately, they, they feel a little generic because they, they have to have the conceit of the darkness wrapped around them, although you can still see aspects of their design poking through that. And once you've wiped them off, that's when they, they kind of... They, sometimes they come to colour, which is, which is interesting. But I don't know, I, I always felt like the combat was... Because of its simplicity, like, it was merely a, an obstacle to get through, and I was more interested in actually... Um, you know, once I've beaten them, having the ability to, to uncorrupt the world... Uh, so they were more just an obstacle. I don't think there was something I was particularly like, oh, wow, look at the design of that. Yeah, um, I mean, the thing is, most of the enemies fall into a particular cadence that is very repetitive. And mm. even the ones that you need a certain, you know, like a certain trick to like d- break their defence or whatever, as soon as you've done that, it just kind of reverts to the same gameplay style. So it really kind of takes away from their individuality or even their design in a lot of ways. I also get muddled up in my memory, um, and I know that the developers actually said they wanted every conflict to feel like a boss fight. Um, I'm actually struggling to separate in my mind the the the, the sub boss fights with the actual the lieutenants of Araman and the the sort of regular nasties. I can't even remember sort of what the regular monsters that you had as regular Black battles. Blobs. Yeah, what what were they supposed to be? The the guys that you fought occasionally on platforms. More than anything, they were usually just a punishment for not getting to them in time during the platforming sequences. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Because if you got them straight away, you could hit them with your sword and kill That's them right. straight off. Yeah, before yeah, they yeah. Get Generally, you saw them coming a couple of 
sort of stages of platforming away and couldn't quite make it there in time. But they were very much just parry attack, parry mm. attack until they were dead. And um, you I could knock think them off. they're supposed to be... Uh, if you got them to the edge, you could instantly kill them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I, th- I think they were supposed to be uh, the remaining Ahura that had been right. affected by the corruption. Figures. But, uh, mm-hmm. The corruption actually plays a real significant part, I think, in throughout all the gameplay. Although it, at the times, is a little bit bland because ultimately you're trying to you know make the world light again and everything's black and dull and grey. But um, a lot of the platforming sections, obviously there's corruptions coming down the wall so that you know where to navigate, where to jump. It's a really easy way for the developers to, to put an obstacle in your way without necessarily saying, well, there's a wall there. It's just like, well, you need to jump now because there's corruption there. Um, there there's certainly the time limit on stuff. If you don't do something, uh, you know, button presses perfectly, then the corruption will creep and try to get you, that, which adds a little bit of tension, which quite often actually isn't in this game. So I think it, it serves a, a fairly decent purpose. Also, you can tell this is the Assassin's Creed engine um, because one, the draw distance is incredible. Uh, you once I remember the, there's a windmill section uh, later on in the game. You can get up to you know the very top half of this this windmill, mm. and you can see for it feels like miles. And in fact, if you come back to the the open world hub area, you can look over and you can see the windmill massively in the yeah. distance. So it, it's got a ridiculous amount of uh, draw distance to this. But I I felt really. When you when you set something free, when you set the world free um, by the corruption, or once you you wash the corruption away, I that, I felt that really quite powerful. Once you've moved on, it was a it's a beautiful moment, which sometimes games don't do particularly well. But it, I don't know, it, it kind of got to me every single time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much uh, as I say, it reminded me very much of Akami, but uh, Akami was beautiful in that, and uh, and this yeah, this was in. Well, when you heal trees in that as well, um, but yeah, in this it was uh, yeah a few years on and, and in HD, so yeah, definitely looked good. I, obviously, uh, this being Kane and Rince, we'll be um, dotting some uh, music here and there throughout the sh- show, and I must admit, I don't have a strong memory of the soundtrack to this game really beyond the uh, beyond the the dialogue. Yeah, I think the music was suitably ambient, but it didn't really stand on its own merits. No. Outside the game, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's entirely pleasant, but I don't remember there being anything in it which made me think I cannot sell this copy of this game because I need to listen to that piece of music again. Uh, so uh, you complete the the sub levels, the hubs, and the mini bosses, and whatever you want to call it. Um, you've been to the depths of the earth, and then you've been the depths to the... and back. Yeah, and, and you've been to the skies. Been to the depths and the skies. That's right. Um, uh, and then uh, stuff happens with uh, Elika, and we're going to get to the ending here quite soon now. Anyone want to remind remind me who's a bit more familiar uh, with what happens? The, the whole point? idea is that um, there's the trees of life, if I remember correctly, and the idea of you collecting <clears throat> these these orbs of light as you've been progressing through is to reactivate these trees, to so give life back to these trees, which ultimately, um, every time one tree is lit up, it completely cleanses that world. Um, so the whole journey has been basically to give these trees back so you can have a, a fighting chance to, to get... What's the main guy? Arman. Arman. Yeah. Um, basically to, to stand a chance in that fight and push him back to a singular area where you can actually have the, the one-on-one Oh, yeah, um, which has an interesting... 
aspect to it. Yeah, so um, you you cleanse each of the fertile grounds and that allows the individual trees of life, the four in that sort of open area in front of the temple, to be restored. Uh, that pushes Araman back to the into point the where temple. you can, into the temple where you can confront him there mm. and hopefully restore the, the, the single largest tree of life in the temple to imprison him again. So you've defeated the lieutenants and you make your way back into the temple um, to confront Araman, and the first thing you're faced with is the Morning King. Now, I don't... I, I, I remember this being a less... Because the, the Araman battle is quite interesting um, in a couple of ways. It's not your standard final boss. It, it, it was... He, it, he took the form of... Was it all four or just two of... Oh, the, okay, right. So The it's, other yeah. bosses. It's a boss so it was rush. Kind of a, he was a hybrid. It's a, a boss that could... You know, Seth style in Street Fighter Four. A boss that had powers of the other characters okay. and combined them. Shang Tsung. Yeah, Shang Tsung indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, that happens, and then at, at this point, you realize. I, I, I'm not sure if you know it all by this point, but at this point, you realize that uh, the the uh, the Morning King is Elika's father. Yep. That he made a deal for his soul. Uh, with Araman in exchange for Elika's life and Araman granted that but that put him under Araman's control and he then severed the tree of life freeing Araman Uh, you've also found out that each of the four uh, other bosses have uh, tragic stories but for Mm. the most part they're kind of they feel a little like the bosses themselves, I suppose. They feel a little, little archetypal. So the alchemist wanted eternal life, and Araman granted it to him. Um, yeah. The the warrior want the, the hunter wanted the perfect prey, and and Araman granted him that in exchange for mm-hmm. his soul. Uh, the concubine was a slighted uh, woman whose lover's new um, new um, wife smited her and right. and she wanted revenge I think uh, can't remember the warrior um, can't remember what his story is um, but they all they all have their own tragic tale to tell about yeah. how Araman tricked them into being mm. his puppets um, uh, but ultimately you found out that Elika um, has obviously been brought back to life under these rather dire circumstances um, and that you are going to have to kill her father in order to set things right, and then face Araman, which is the the battle you're referring to. Yeah, so the Araman battle takes place inside an arena, and it's uh, you you you're seeing the prince from the POV of the end boss second person gaming second person sort of second person because it's, it's real you could you could i mean uh, technically i suppose it's still third person but you could you could argue it's second person the first time second i second person yeah from the point of view of someone else i suppose uh, yeah, yeah involved but yeah it's, it's second person it's just we don't we don't often have it yeah um you know you don't often see that from the point of view of another character well, the first, in the game the first time i saw this was uh that in this context i'm sure there have other been other pov shots but in a boss battle, it was in uh, Legend of Zelda: The Phantom Hourglass on the DS, which was a, a mm. came out a year before this Prince of Persia, yeah. and uh, it used one of the screens to show what the uh, what the boss was seeing, so you could, as Link, time your attack, and it, you know, typical right. 
genius Nintendo moment, um, one mm. of the standouts of that game. But then it, it was used again here. I don't know if they planned it before the Phantom Hourglass or whether it was inspired by. But uh, um, but yes, it also plays a little bit like um, something like Nebulous or Tower Toppler, as it was known in America, where you're running around a spherical platform that keeps sort of yeah rotating it's like it's almost like a scrolling platform game but you're constantly trying to get a little bit higher so yeah. although it it feels very some something that was quite new and striking and startling it was actually sort of in a way making you play a kind of more retro game to it to end the game um hmm. but yeah it was an unusual way of tackling it and I, and I quite like the fact that it was an emboss that didn't do the usual thing of asking you to utilize skills or weapon sets that you'd never had up to that point in the game or or anything like that it was really about you showing what you learned over the over the course of the game but but with that little bit of a twist that it appeared now more side scrolling than yes. third person almost and yeah. you were looking at it from a slightly different perspective um and araman has this sort of large almost dragon-like creature, I suppose, was attacking you periodically, and so you had to time your platforming to avoid him and also the other obstacles that were in your way. So, um, yeah, I thought it was quite interesting. A, yeah. a, bit of a, a bit different to what you'd done in the game. Yeah, I, I loaded up my uh, my old save game and, and tried one or two different areas, and I thought, oh, here's the last save, I'll load this up, and it was at that fight. Mm. Uh, and you know, rules of, of never doing the hardest thing in the game when you've been away from oh, the game God. for the last four years. Uh, so you can die a lot in this game, um, <laughs> which I found out, uh, you know, just messing around in that one fight. But it, it's it's more of a, it's the environment, once again, it's it's challenging you. There's a lot of corruption around. Uh, you have the time, you'll, you'll get to the, the light areas mm. in time. But uh, I mean, it, it is, you, you can't really hit you in many respects. Once no. again, it's fairly, mm. you can see the, the clockwork happening if you die a few times. Actually, yeah. one of the things I remember back then... Um, when I first played the game, there there's a lot of talk about not dying uh, or you know, the whole dying aspect. Uh, there was an achievement that I was particularly going for. I think it was die less than... Elica couldn't save you more than 100 times, I think. Yeah, mm. um, which was something I was going for. So there was actually a, a lot of um, tension on me from not actually going down that route mm. and letting Elica so, save me every time, which the reason I bring it up is that I remember going for that achievement. I got that achievement. Mm. Um, and I probably died 30 times um, revisiting this final boss because I was like, <laughs> I remember being saved quite so many times by Elica right. because I remember I would have been paranoid. Wow. Back then. But it's interesting that they, the designers, developers, decided to put that in, they mm. uh, acknowledge that, but only as an an achievement, which is mm. has absolutely no bearing on the game whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, I think that's more testament to the fact that they wanted everyone to be able to see all of this game. They didn't want anyone to feel like the ending, beating the game, if you like, was, was out of reach. Um, but they wanted, with the combo system... I mean, the only way you would know if someone had mastered, quote unquote, mastered the combo system was if they got the achievement. Mm -hmm. The only way you would know if they'd explored the world was not anything they would unlock mm. in the game from exploring the world and getting all the orbs. It was, you know, the orbs didn't mean anything in terms of unlocking abilities or anything like that, as far yeah, as I remember. No, which it is the achievements. The kind of thing that would, the kind of thing that would annoy somebody who really doesn't appreciate achievements. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> True. absolutely. But, um, yeah. Also, to, to tie in some of the, before we get on to the, the final reveal, um, to tie in some of the other things I've forgotten about this, there was down, the DLC that you could get before it, uh, before the, the epilogue DLC that was released, um, which gave you 
Altair's Assassin's Creed costume, oh, yeah. and also Jade from Beyond Good and Evil's uh, costume. So when Stars I loaded of Ubisoft, back in, yeah. yeah, when I loaded back into my game, I was expecting to see Elika all in, in her princess outfit, and you know um, the prince <laughs> prince outfit, and there was Assassin's Creed and Beyond Good and Evil, completely the destroying the atmosphere. Yeah, so you get you get to the top, and uh, I think is it. I can't quite remember again, but you you effectively pulling switches or pushing buttons to hurt. You're releasing her powers. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, you've got to get to key points at which she yeah. will release her powers. There's, I think there's patches on the wall that you've got to reach, isn't there? Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, you, yeah. There's little platforms. You you basically mash the the Y button, and you that's see it. his hands go up in front of him, as in oh the light, the light. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and then that's about it, really. So you. Finish the section, get to the top, and uh, you seal him away. Yeah. Yes, you jump inside him, no less. Jump inside him. What? Yeah, you jump inside him, and she kind of explodes. Right. With with light, which you know breaks down his darkness. And it leaves her a little worse for wear. (laughs) (laughs) Under the weather. Under the weather. So this is the big reveal. This is the ending, and I think the ending, as much as anything else in this game typifies the divided reaction indeed um so in order to restore the tree of life um elica has had to sacrifice herself she knew this all along the prince didn't and the key point here is that they have developed this relationship all along and all the while she knew she was going to have to sacrifice herself in order to contain araman and the prince did not know this and did not like this I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. So the the prince has to, he realises she is dead, picks up her body and has to walk down a rather long corridor in order to place her body on a plinth outside the temple uh, where it should rightfully be and where he saw in a vision that he shared with her that her body had been when uh, her father decided to to uh, make the deal with Araman and in exchange for her life. Right. Now, as I recall, after this long walk, uh, you can... You do actually have, you sort of, people say you don't have the choice, but you do have the choice because you can actually switch the game off at this point, can't you? That's the choice, yeah. That's yeah. the problem is you can't see the credits without, on one of the choices you, you could make. Yeah. Well, ultimately, actually, when, you, when you're walking down the corridor, the credits are actually rolling. Oh, so are they? Yeah, as you're oh, walking down okay. the corridor, they're rolling down the Big side problem. of the screen. Yeah. You're on the yeah. other side of the screen. Oh, okay, um, I'd forgotten the that. Sort of the, and the then, prime, yeah, it was yeah, really the, well done. I thought it was yeah. they stop Ruinously. they stop as the the final door opens and you walk out into the the you know the ultimate right. bright sunshine because mm. the whole world has been cleansed by this point. Yeah. Um and yeah they stop as you walk up to the altar and it's it's your choice okay. whether you put her onto the the altar which well actually you put her onto the altar whatever but it's mm. your choice is what you do next after that. Mm. I'd forgotten that because that you you're actually walking uh the prince up the corridor aren't you? Yeah. The princess yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you're you're walking. You're controlling, you're controlling him. You're pushing forward. Yes. Um, I'd forgotten that it went to a cutscene and dropped it, and I'd forgotten that the credits um, were were rolling. Okay, that makes it uh, actually more interesting. I think uh, choice because it doesn't feel like you're leaving the game undone. Because what happens when you put the princess on the mm. the the plinth on a resting place is that you are put back in full control of the prince and are given no indication of what to do next. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. You are given absolutely well, no indication except that you are now looking out onto the area where the four smaller trees of life yeah. have regrown. Yeah, there's a slight camera kind of tilt towards one of the towards trees, them. which yeah. is mm. now glowing and kind of going, hmm. <laughs> what could you do? But I guess people feel that 
I knew what I was going to do and I was happy to go and do it, even though I knew what the consequence would be. But I think the the reason why this end is so divisive is, I don't know, is it because people don't feel they did have a choice or because they just don't like the fact that if they do no, follow I, it to the natu- natural progression, they've undone everything mm. they've spent the last 20 hours doing? I think that's it. Yeah. That's certainly how I felt. Um, I... I at this point, when I realized what I was supposed to do, I ran over to one of the trees, and sure enough, you're given a prompt to cut yep. the first of the four trees. I put the controller down, and I paced for 15 clear minutes, at least if not more, <laughs> raging at this game. Excellent. That it was going to ask me to undo everything I had done, which is what I would have done. I mean, I'm very much a player where if I'm playing a quote-unquote role-playing game, I will do the what I deem to be the best thing to do. So mm. I'll always play the Boy Scout. I will sacrifice myself for the good of others. Mm-hmm. I will make the choice on behalf of everyone. And in this case, the choice on behalf of everyone is to shut off your console and say, right, fine, the prince accepts Elika's sacrifice. That saves the world. Yep. Job done. Yeah. That's not, as far as I'm concerned now, the ending to this game, although you can choose it if you like. And and there's the issue, isn't it, surely? Because as gamers, we're taught, well, if there's something else you, you can do, you, you go off and do it. I mean, we've been talking about um, Red Dead Redemption, where ultimately you have one ending there, and then you have a choice to, to follow through with the, the continuation of that story with Jackmaster. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, you know, I think that, that game doesn't necessarily guide the players quite as well as the, that, that choice even exists, but, you know, you can ultimately lead the, the game where it is and, and not mm. necessarily have a slightly different appeal. But... To me, it was okay. Well, you know, it's it's another section of game, and it's asking me to basically participate in this. So, although mm-hmm. I, I saw it maybe less as a choice, moreover, well, you know, they want me to experience something else beyond this point. Yeah, was there not? See, from my point of view, I was I was thinking right. I know, I know what's going to happen here, um, but that's quite cool. And I'm not I'm not role playing this. This this mm-hmm. prince is this prince. This is Nolan North, dude prince. I'm not him. Uh, so if it, if it was me and if I did what I think is the right thing to do, then yeah, I've, my game has finished. But however, because I want to see the rest of the graphics and the, and the music (laughs) as a game, um, I'm going to see what selfish Nolan North dude prints did next. (laughs) So I guess that's how I justified it. What I would say is I was absolutely raging because I considered, no, this should be my choice to make and whatever the prince thinks should happen should not factor into Mm. it. And then I realized that when we talk about role-playing games, certainly in my case, I play every single character, be it Shepard, be it uh, whichever character in Fallout or or Skyrim, Mm. I play me. That's not role-playing, that's being me. That's just doing everything I would normally do. I'm not challenging myself to role-play. Yeah. When you talk about role-play, it's talking about acting. Actors play roles. They don't necessarily do things in plays or films or uh, whatever the, this, the particular acting role may be. Mm. They don't choose what they do. They do what the character would do because they're inhabiting that role. So I find it quite interesting that we talk about role-playing games when... And it's not for everyone. Some people do adopt a role and play that role. But I don't. I very much just play, this is what I would do. Mm. I would choose this. I would do that. I would be, quite frankly, a stealthy sniper because I am in every single game. They both have their both ways of playing. Both playing yeah. the role and playing yourself have a lot to recommend them. It's even worth Absolutely. sometimes playing through 
the same game more than once doing doing the different to see things. see how it would work if you if you chose differently yeah. absolutely in this case though whether or not we believe you're given a, a choice if you truly play the role that you are given it may not be your role but it's the role you are given as the prince mm. then you accept his decision and his decision as far as i'm concerned is to save elica because with the ending that you eventually get he says he or it's it's implicit that he could not accept that that was the only way to defeat Araman. That's he right. He wanted his cake mm-hmm. and eat it, so to speak. Yes. He thought there was a way to do it without sacrificing Elika, the woman he has now grown to love. That challenged me to play that role. And for that reason, this is one of, I think, the best endings to a game. Mm. Because it forced me, after my 15 minutes of stomping my feet like a toddler who's kicked his <laughs> toys out of the pram, it forced me to actually think, hang on, I'm going to have to put myself in the shoes of the prince and do what he would do. And that I have never experienced because in a fallout, you don't have to do that. You can do what you would do. Mm. You're never forced to make a choice against your better judgment on the basis of what you think the story demands, I guess. And so I really, really liked the fact that as the prince, I went round after you know, my tantrum, cutting these uh, down and seeing how the prince's choice, Mm. you know, what ending that would yield. It's kind Uh, of, uh, it sounds almost like the same process that I went through, but yours was more sort of profound and dramatic. Um, But a similar sort of mindset of that, yeah, maybe this is the right ending, but what happened next is the prince's, the ending of this prince's story because he's self-serving enough and arrogant enough to believe that he can both have Elika as a friend and or a lover uh, and save the world and it well we finish this up I mean it, it's interesting because the epilogue DLC digs a little deeper into whether that was a, a right choice or not but obviously you don't know this at the time yeah before we get to that what what did you make of the ending at the time and I'd like to hear that from Darren as well to be honest it took me about 10 seconds to start cutting down trees you know so I'd probably make a, <laughs> I'd probably make an amazing lumberjack <laughs> but uh, to be honest, I think it's uh, Osmond really should have been a little bit more proactive in this game, you know? It's like the minute that he noticed that the prince was starting to chop down trees, you know, he could be like, ah, oh, fuck's sake. If she means that much to you, I'll bring her back to life, okay? Leave the evil god in the tomb for now. You know, I'll do this one thing, but did I push your luck, you little bastard? The trouble bastard? is, these deities are very rarely that logical. Uh, you may have noticed this about religion. Yeah... The difficulty is that, and I'm perhaps giving them credit here, the the god on which uh, Ormads is is based, uh, the the source of light is supposed to be separate to our world. It is a source of light on our world and shines in our world, but it he has no uh, direct influence on it. Is that because he's in lazy this... or because he can't? <laughs> well, <laughs> That, that's that's the religion that we're talking because about. Because if he's been lazy, game, he think. is one hell of a dick. <laughs> okay, well... Then... But anyway, as I was saying, like, to me, the ending... Basically, I want the Delica back, you know? I'm kind of very into that, you know, like, trying to defy your fate kind of thing, which the prince mm-hmm. really... He took that philosophy by the reins and he was like, you know, our man's a dick, but he's only imprisoned right now. He could be taken out again, and Elka's dead if I leave her there. 
So I'm sort of trees, but goodbye. Mm. Mm. I think the most powerful moment in the game, actually, for me, is when you actually do... So you cut the final tree, you, you take the final orb, the orb of life, and you bring it back, and much like her father had done previously, you you revive Erica, or Elica. And um, the first thing she she does is say, why? Uh, I think that's probably the most powerful line in the game. It's just a singular word, which is she looks you in the eye and says, why? Because I'm a and man. Because, yeah. Take I'm, a look at I'm yourself. A, I'm a selfish dick. Yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, I've been traveling with a donkey for the past three years. Why the hell do you think I did it? Yeah, I'm going to bury the well just because you know I fancy you. Yeah, well, kind of. That's what it, it comes to. Yeah, I think. I mean, that's the other thing that I, I I liked about the ending was that from a symbolic point of view, it it works well, even if you don't take it as literal or, or feel that you know, it takes away your uh, your agency as a as a as a player. It's um it has something to say about you know, the cyclical nature of the shitness of things. <laughs> it's like you can't, you can't, yeah. you can't make everything right, you know, and yeah. it's just a matter of how, how shit the shit thing is. Well, but obviously, yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a more selfish thing, but then maybe it isn't because maybe, maybe the prince, it isn't just, he isn't just bringing Elika back for his own selfish, even physical needs. He's bringing Elika back because, he thinks she's got something to, you know, offer the world at this, large. This is what the epilogue DLC um, yes. goes into. Uh, and obviously, you know, the, the, the end of this game caused a little bit of... There was a lot of talk on the internet about it, you know, which is a good thing, I think. It's a positive Yeah, thing. and people are still going, um, as we'll hear shortly. Yeah, so the... Uh, but it was a plan of theirs all along, so they released an epilogue piece of DLC, which, you know, just, just talked a little bit, give a little bit more insight of maybe why he chose his choice, and yours for 800 points, still yours for 800 points as well, which... <laughs> Twice as much as the game of, will cost you, as we yeah, discussed kind of before recording. £6.80, just uh, for a piece of DLC for a game that's four years old. I think, yeah, there's a, there's a conversation to be had there. But, um, so... It, it begins and opens up with you know that, that same like why and it, it continues there and she slaps him around the face and his basic reasons which you you're, you find out is that basically um Iron Man has it, that was his plan all along that he wanted to basically her to to sacrifice herself again because if she is the pure light then he's managed to take you know the most the, the one thing that can actually destroy him um, and you know, if she's back in his grasp, although the world is now purified, if he can get out again at some point, then there is nothing that can stop him. Uh, ultimately, you know, he will have ultimate power. So the prince's reason de jour is to uh, release her, save her, and do you know what? We'll find another way. You don't need to do this. Yeah. There is another way. Um, and as you play for the epilogue DLC, it's it's quite a hard piece of DLC. Um, it, it's kind of final point is she actually leaves the prince at the very very end um, to go off and I believe it's to find her people so from what that says there is more of her kind uh, and they're going to build an army basically to uprise because obviously she's tried one way and uh, you know it will continue on so I think they definitely had plans to push this game forward um, and whether it will see the light of day we, we so... won't know but it she buggers off, but what happens with the prince if he's like on his own? Now? He, he he basically watches her jump out the window and kind of, and that's where the cliffhanger is. You know, where's he go now? And infamously, the DLC was about ten times as hard as the main game because <laughs> the team had had so much flack for the game being too mm -hmm. easy that they went completely the other direction, seemingly yep. as some kind of fuck you, or possibly just because they got it slightly wrong. I don't know. 
And then everyone complained that the game was too hard. Well, I think, yeah, a lot of people complained that DLC <laughs> yeah, was yeah, too pretty, hard. Fickle gamers. It's, it's a very difficult thing to get right, your difficulty level. I, I understand yeah. that. And, and I think they were trying to do something slightly different with this game. And I think there's an argument to say that they they went too far in, in the direction of everyone must be able to finish this game um, and, and there's a balance to be struck and I, I think the argument that they then went too far in the other direction with the DLC is probably valid too but like many games uh, this is the first bite of the cherry I know it's not the first Prince of Persia game but it is the the reboot and it's the start of where the series was going to go and so if there are some some kinks to be worked out, if you know there are improvements to be made, that's what happens in a sequel, and that's why I think it's a shame to this point we haven't seen a, a sequel. Especially considering we... that the ending left it so open, you know, it's, mm. there's obviously places for it to go, and uh, too many games don't close their story off; they just kind of leave it open for a sequel, and when mm. they don't get a sequel, it just makes it. Irritating as shit, basically. Yeah. I wonder how many units the Forgotten Sands sort of semi but not really film tie-in conclusion to the Sands of Time. You've got to remember it was on far more platforms. Yeah, it was also uh, on the tied way into DS, film. PSP, yeah. I'd be surprised if it didn't sell more than 2.2 million. Similarly... Uh, but I don't seem to remember it being... It wasn't a big thing. I mean, it, it did. I think it did similarly reviews-wise to, to this 2008 Prince of Persia, maybe slightly... Worse. Um, I mean, it was rushed. I mean, like nearly everyone that's yeah. played the game said it was. Yeah. You know, obviously the development cycle was basically there to coincide with the movie. Before concluding ourselves, we should bring in our contributions from the forum. Horace Go Skiing says, "I didn't expect a great deal from the game, but was pleasantly surprised by it. It's clearly a very forgiving game, which helps get keep things going. The graphics are unusual and therefore something different to the norm, and I enjoyed restoring colour to the various areas of the land." Like in Whizball. He doesn't say that, that's my bit. I did find the prince was a bit irritating with his wisecracks and attitude, and things did get repetitive on occasion, but overall I enjoyed the experience and found it a nice palate cleanser between playing more substantial releases. Uh, Mr. Nicey says, This is actually the game where I was introduced to the Prince of Persia series, and although the gameplay was very basic in many ways, I loved the way it flowed and found that unusual art style really up my street. I think I enjoyed the relaxing gameplay so much this this was a bit of a de-stress game for me and I went on to explore every nook and cranny collecting every single orb floating about the place the, the puzzles were not too taxing the QTEs although a bit annoying meant, re meant that you really needed to reload a save in my eyes it was a nice solid little game that made me go out and buy the next Prince of Persia release too James? Uh, Papa says uh, I actually didn't see why so many people had such a problem with the game Yes, it's easy, but so too is Journey, a game which I feel owes quite a lot to Prince of Persia, but hasn't attracted the same level of criticism. My only real complaint was that the ending was pretty terrible, in that it gave you the illusion of choice, but still had to do something awful in order to see the final cinematic and credits. The game itself was a wonderful journey through splendid and varied locales. Actually, yeah, to that point, yeah, they do play like a sub credits, but once you've done the final act, act yeah. then you get like a five-minute, really yeah. long extended yeah, credits. Yeah, that is but... true. Hmm. Dubboy2k says, Actually, a rather enjoyable game. The platforming stuck to what Persia does best, 
a gymnastics masterclass that just felt right when it flew together, moving effortlessly from wall to wall to, wall to platform to rope and back again. That always felt good and this never changed that formula, just spiced it up with some glowing collectibles in interesting places. The whole companion saving your life was also never a problem. She never got in the way and having that freedom to experiment with very punitive measures put in place was to me a good thing and far more welcome than continually falling to my doom. The problems is the same problems the series has always faced. Poor combat broke up the good parts and the story was so benign as to be pointless. A fact that would have passed by silently if the ending had not been so offensively obtuse. <laughs> And finally, Richie JT says, one of my favourite games of this generation. I go to, I go back to it for a playthrough every now and then. I love the way it flows when you get a rhythm going. So, uh, we should round up. Um, let's start with Tony, Prince of Persia 2008. Recommend it? Yeah, I think it's an odd one, actually, because normally we, we can be very glowing about games. Um, I, 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 I think the... The gameplay is maybe a bit too simple. Um, I think you know we've discussed many reasons why. Um, I generally like the story. I, I think there's some really interesting you know, parts where they talk to each other. Um, I think the graphics are spectacular. And actually, going back to it now, even four years after, that they really do hold up. You know, a little bit of anti-analyzing you know, could, could go a long way, but uh, yeah, I. I want to say it without reservations. Um, I think if you listen to this and you haven't played it before, then yeah, I think you would know just from this conversation. I don't think it's perfect, but I I like the direction it was taking. Um, whether it's the best of the series, I don't even think it's the best in the series. I, you know, I really like um, not the original trilogy, the, <laughs> the Sands of Time trilogy. I really like the first game um, and like some of those aspects more within that. But yeah, I, I think I would recommend it if, if you've got a spare. It's about eight hours, I'd say. And three pounds. <laughs> or something it's very cheap seven dollars James uh, yeah yeah um, I nominated this for uh, Cain Rinse because it seems like every six months or so the ending crops up as a mm. discussion mm. point uh, on forums or Twitter or somewhere um, and I think the the problem is if you've listened to this and haven't played before the ending's kind of been spoiled for Just you a bit. Um, but generally if i was walking down the street and happened to bump into someone i would and i frequently do recommend prince of persia to them i i would recommend this game you you kind of have to let the gameplay side of it go it it is going to be quite simple you can try and make it more interesting for yourself if you'd like to uh but it will not demand much of you um but in terms of graphics dialogue the story and an ending that if it's still sparking discussions now, must be worthy of some kind of interest. Mm. Uh, I think you need to see the dialogue and the relationship between Alec and the Prince grow. So I wouldn't recommend just watching the ending on YouTube or mm. something. You're not going to experience it as we did. Um, but no, I, I think it's a good game. I think it's an interesting reboot to the series. Uh, and I'd be interested to see where they would take that in a sequel. Darren. Oh, that's good. <laughs> no um would i recommend this game i think i would but it's also without reservations uh not without reservations it's the actual core gameplay isn't that gripping and if you don't get kind of like if you don't start like falling in love with the visual style 
and you don't find the story interesting, there's not really much to play for. You've got to take it on its own merits. It's kind of like a little roller coaster through this story and this beautiful world. And just for that, I think it's worth playing. But not so much for the actual core gameplay concepts. Yeah, I it is, I think this is the first game on Cane and Rinse, and it's actually unusual for me generally to be really tepid on a game. Like, I really don't have anything strongly negative to say about it, but equally I don't have anything massively mm. positive to say about it. Like, it's certainly enjoyable at points. Um, it's, it's not that there weren't particularly bits that made me want to throw it out the window. I played it, you know, sort of over the period of about a week, finished it, traded it in, never thought about it again until this podcast or possibly <laughs> um, possibly when the conversation about the ending came up and I said, oh, I quite liked it actually. Uh, so, yeah, certainly not one that I, I... There are many games ahead of it in the you must play before you die list mm. and uh, possibly even some of them are Prince of Persia games. I would recommend... Um, finding the HD version of Sands of Time, possibly even Prince of Persia Classic before Prince of Persia 2008, but it does look quite nice. It does have some quite sparkly, sparky, if not sparkling, dialogue. And um, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, you uh, actually reminded me that it took me six months to finish this game. All right. Okay. I went clean, after, clean off it after about a day, and then mm. I got back in six months later and I... You know, I started enjoying it in a way that I wasn't when I first started playing it. I remember that time there was a lot of conversation about how Elika was going to feature probably in like the top lists of um, you know female. Really? Uh, yeah, that, that, you know she's fairly graceful, and you know I think she's a fairly decent. Um, she's <laughs> fine, she's, and she's just she's a very good character. It's just that, as I said earlier, it just seems that she's too scripted, as opposed to feeling like a real person. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, that that's what the feeling was at the time. Like, yeah, I went back and, and watched a few reviews, and, and a few were actually saying, um, you know... Oh, that Elika, just check out. Yeah, if, if she doesn't, you know, make it into your top ten list of, you know, great female characters, then I don't know who will. And, and I'm like, well, did that ever actually really happen? I don't, I don't well, think the Maybe she would, but that would probably dry. say a lot more about the lack of great female characters in gaming. She's, I think she's certainly well-designed. She's well, in fact, the lack of great characters in gaming. Well, absolutely, uh, but <laughs> Jesus, yeah. women are less well re- represented, and so just by sheer chance, <laughs> their probability, there are fewer of them. Um, but yes, she's 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 okay. She's like the rest of the game. She's quite well done, but nothing to write home about, I guess. For me, but thank you maybe, for your suggestion. Maybe, James. yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, did, I didn't play it. No, I mean it is it is difficult to recommend a game where the most outstanding facet of it is the <laughs> ending. Um, it's unusual because so many endings go out with a complete whimper. At least, at least this one has is a talking point. You know, that's that's more more than a lot of endings manage, um, and it's not all for the wrong reasons, like Mass Effect mm-hmm. Three. So. I think actually, you know, listening to all, all those sums, I, I think we'd actually all play a, a sequel to this game. I, I think we we're all interested to see where they would take the story. So, Ubisoft, if you're listening, reboot the series, reboot the reboot. Yeah, and, and actually, Ubisoft, they could... if you're not listening, you should be. What the hell are you playing yes. at? They they could actually work on the the core. The, the parkour QTE gameplay and turn it into something really <laughs> exhilarating and fun. Whereas in the game, it manages to be enjoyable, but it never yeah, really sort of. Bear, never bear really in got mind, me. this is what 
2008, so a year after the first Assassin's Creed. Yeah. Think how much that engine has changed since then. Like, yeah. The, the first Assassin's Creed was pretty. Mm. But I, th- I think you've also hit the hit the nail on the head there. The problem with this game getting a sequel is Assassin's yeah. Creed. Yeah, they found it. Yeah. Three word reviews. Three word reviews. Strident, talk while moving. Count Stacks shouldn't do this. He was referring to the the ending specifically. Uh, dastardly Jabby, sadly overlooked gem. Squeezy Jizzy Peas, highly stylized platforming. Spatial 101, Nolan North again. Leg of time, had terrible ending. Mm. Mormon Rage, my favourite <laughs> ending. <laughs> I think those two sum the, uh, yeah. this game up quite aptly. Justin Knowles, Darren is sexy. Sorry. No. Nothing beats original. And thank yeah, you very much, Justin. That was quite yeah. a compliment. And I like that three-word review of Darren <laughs> Foreman. Uh, yeah, he was referring to uh, Prince of Persia Classic, as it's now known there. He thinks that's uh, the better game still. Uh, Eric from Lansing. That's Lansing, New York, not Lansing, Sussex. Lost interest quickly. Rock Stepper. Pretty but hollow. Tweaky, yeah. I think. Uh, pretty but easy. In Fury AC3. Typical dumb blonde. I don't actually know who he's referring to, because who who in the game is blonde? <laughs> no one is. I presumed he was referring to the three-word review above. Pretty but easy. Typical dumb blonde. Oh. <laughs> That's the only explanation. A, a stereotype applied to a typical dumb blonde. Uh, yeah. I don't know if they no, came in not, after one another not directly. So but no, I... um, one last one as well from Green82. Platforming was rad. And this week's roundup, slightly remixed... If you want to play along with Cane and Rinse, and we know an increasing number of you do, uh, it's worth making a note of our future featured games. These will include Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem, Flow, Flower and Journey, all in the same show, and possibly that other game that game company did when they were art students, if we can play it. Bulletstorm, Vessel, Dear Esther, that's in one show, Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty, and Metal Gear Solid 3, Solid Snake, a month apart, but we're just giving you plenty of warning. Mm-hmm. Just to clarify, that's Vessel and Dear Esther in the same show, not Vessel, Dear Esther, and Bulletstorm all in the same show. Because that would, <laughs> that would be, very be different. Dear Esther and Bulletstorm in one show would be a interesting mix, to say the least. <laughs> so Vessel and Dear Esther together. Our blog can be found at canandrince.com. Uh, Rince is part of the Character Select Network, so come and join the discussion on the Character Select Network. That's characterselect.net forward slash forum. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Cane and Rinse. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Cane and Rinse. And you can email us if you want to, Cane and Rinse at gmail.com. Uh, just remains for me, Leon Cox, to thank Tony Atkins, James Carter and Darren Foreman. And we'll see you on the next issue. Goodbye.